Too many Americans have bought into what they're selling, which is that, oh, no, the people don't have any power to make any changes. Well, that is wrong, actually. Stay tuned, and uh, we'll talk about different ways we can get the power to work. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. America's founders said it was an absolute requirement that for a republic to function or even exist, widespread education was foundational. There's a reason why the former guy, the orange one, so gleefully said how much he loves the uneducated forms of government which function nicely without the inefficiencies of democracy, like fascism or what passed for communism, depend on an uneducated populace, people believing they have no power. You notice the 21st century right is working hard to destroy public education to eliminate the nuisance of critical thinking. As one of my guests long ago urged, we need to think with history, which is exactly what today's powerful far right is out to eliminate. How much more difficult it is for the right if and when large portions of us actually learn important and indeed useful lessons from history that can empower us. In a democracy, of course, the legitimate power lies with the people. Of course, in an authoritarian government like that of Putin, Trump, Orban, and others, is the goal is to convince citizens they have no power. Today, the intent to convince us of our powerlessness has been wildly successful. But the facts, the reality of even recent history shows the opposite. People really do have the power. Is it easy? Is there instant gratification, as so many Americans are used to? Heck no! But if we want political change, actual social movements, people refusing to remain quiet is essential. We are not without power. In her new essay on Tom Dispatch, our guest, author Beverly Goligorsky, examines the effectiveness of today's right-wing social movements and compares it with pieces of our history that have brought real change that clearly the right wants us to not know about. Our guest today is Beverly Goligorsky, a Tom Dispatch regular who's the author of four novels, including the New York Times notable book, The Things We Do to Make It Home, and Everybody Has a Story. Her new novel is Can You See the Wind?, she was an editor of two political journals, The Viet Report and Leviathan. Her essay in Tom Dispatch is titled, The Need to Organize. What's the message and who's the messenger? Bev, thanks so much for being with us and keeping oh, democracy alive. Well, some, someone noted that, and I wish I could remember, that protest and politics, both are necessary, neither is sufficient. There's been a lot of both in America, but right now it seems one side on the right-left battles learned and became more powerful, while the other did not, and became less powerful. Think about it. What, if any, organized, sustained clamor do you hear? Bev writes, the right wing has grown into a set of movements that continue to flourish nationwide with far too little forceful opposition. Movements, that's a key here to making change. When I was growing up, the only voice of the far right was the John Birch Society, or the even less subtle... Ku Klux Klan. They were not particularly subtle. Normalcy was a pervasive moderate liberalism. 
that's what was normal. It was the vital center. So if you could please describe what their social and political cultural movement looks like in the 2020s. What did the right learn that we did not? Basically, I think what they learned and they've been doing for a long time is consistency. Um, they dislike modernism. They're very much like ISIS in a way. They're willing to fight to the end, mm. not to let progress occur. So the thing is, the left has been broken by a few different things. In more recent time, I think 9-11 had a big effect on this country. I think that it shocked this country, bordered by two oceans, that we were attacked, and it kind of created a quiescence. And so that even though people were so against the Iraq war and the Afghanistan, um, it felt like after one huge demonstration across the nation, there was like a lack of ability to continue. And those were big spaces in which the right kept organizing. And of course, the right is afraid. I mean, they are afraid of losing control. Um, and they, they feed into poverty. They feed into places where there is not stupidity, but there is ignorance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and, and their voice is continuous on the radio, et cetera, et cetera. So how, I'm curious more about the left, how, what was this gap and why the, uh, the right could uh, make good use of that and, and the left didn't after 9-11. Interesting. Yeah, I think partly um, after 9-11, there was still a feeling of sort of economic okayness. People were kind of, okay, my life is fine. I don't have to think about the future. Oh. Uh, yes, I, you know, it was kind of a, a relaxation in one way, not necessarily politically because of 9-11. And, of course, what happened on 9-11 also brought up incredible racism against Muslims, which was added to the systemic racism that already existed against black and brown people. Yes. And um, the thing is that um, the, the left, the quietness of the left was that they had reached something. I don't think it was conscious. But they also, I think the left, we were, we were mm -hmm. no longer excited to make change. There was a lack of excitement after 9-11 that made us quiet, almost like the 50s, but not quite because there had been so much progress. Wow, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Well, that's what we try to do on this show, look at new ideas that perhaps can be <laughs> helpful for people. Now, it, as you say, for years, the right lingered in the shadows. There were, I mean, of course, I remember yeah. George Wallace and Orville Faubus Overt right. racism. We thought that was an ugly, ugly aberration held by very right. few people. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. But learning from history, what kept them out of lurking in the recesses to crawling out of the these gutters? What relevant timeline do you see for for this kind of movement? From you know when it was just a very few wacko, hardcore, obvious KKK type people to the right taking over a whole party. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that the, the lack of real organizing, which was really 
I guess starting in the 80s, that is, there was less and less opposition in the 80s, unlike in the 60s and in the 50s. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 50s were quiescent years, but the rise of the civil rights movement, well, that woke up everybody, not only because of their bravery and what, and they, what they were after at that time was voting rights, but they succeeded. They actually got laws passed for voting rights. Unfortunately, it's now in jeopardy. But that was a success. It was a tremendous success. And, of course, those kinds of successes change consciousness and create community. And the lack of community, the lack of solidarity of people moving together is what really hinders movements. Mm. And, of course, I I feel that... um, with all the good that the computer does, I mean, I write all my books on a computer, so obviously I need my computer, but there is a sense of isolation because oh, yes. only one person at a time at the computer. And, and of course, the last couple of years yes. of the pandemic just solidified that sense of isolation. And it does seem that, that the, the right has, has thrived on this myth of rugged individualism. It's never really been true. So being isolated perhaps wasn't necessarily bad for them because then, you know, it's just individuals. But uh, we haven't, uh, we were sep- we've been separated. We've been uh, feeling powerless since then. And, and I, may, I guess you're right that, you know, after accomplishing things like civil rights, like ending the war in Vietnam, uh, <laughs> The, the idea of, you know, packing up and going home, our job is done. Uh, it actually reminds me a little bit after the uh, the Civil War, when the uh, abolitionists abolished slavery, they packed it in and, and let uh, horrible, you know, uh, Jim Crow racist laws continue down That's south right. because they had done their job. Oy. That's right. Yeah, lot- I mean, also, I mean, a lot of the people who fought in the streets aged out, you know? It's always the next generations of youth that have to take the cudgel. People in their 70s and 80s can attend, but they're not going to organize in the same way. Of course, there are incredible people. It is incumbent upon the generation that comes after and the next Uh, generation and the next generation. I mean, you know, just personally, when I think about my 24-7 activity years ago, I can't do that now. Yeah. I remember a sign at, in, in 217 at the huge women's movement that uh-huh. day yes. after Trump was inaugurated or right before. Uh, there was a sign that said, do I have to do this crap all over again? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's the way a lot of people feel, and they feel sort of downtrodden because of it. But, but. I do believe that there is a lot of wonderful young people doing wonderful things right now. I mean, what I said in my essay is that it's really important for those things to come together in more noisy, grassroots, consistent street movements. That's why Black Lives Matter was so important. It didn't change I mean, we still have systemic racism, but it did raise consciousness about that very word, systemic racism, and also it raised consciousness about racist police, which a lot of us on the left have already known. Yes. But nevertheless, it brought it to people who don't think about it. 
Yeah, interesting. There's, I think so much of, of so-called American exceptionalism is we have all this nice stuff. Let's not think about yeah. where it comes from, how it gets here, the slave labor involved, pollution. We don't think about it because we have this nice stuff. And it's right. hard, it's hard to do that. Who wants you know? It's so much easier. You just go to the store, buy what you need, and and that's that. Uh, but the reality yeah, is, yeah. A, a lot of people are affected. And one of the things that you know people do wonder about is, uh, I mean, there've been tremendous successful left movements in the past. Of course, one thinks of union organizing in the Great yeah. Depression, fighting against eviction, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. We've yeah. had a lot of successes. But yeah. more recently, in 2011, as you know, we saw the Occupy Wall Street action. And I think yeah. the general impression is it didn't work. It was a failure. Your thoughts on Occupy Wall Street and its lasting effects? Okay, so I, I think it was, if you want to look at the broad meaning of change, did it change Wall Street? No. Did it bring the money that all the wealthy people have? Did it make that money taxed? Yeah. No. <laughs> but, but it changed consciousness that they existed. That one, that that slogan of one percent yes. was what why we have Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, tax the rich or wow. Bernie Sanders, yeah. because that consciousness was brought to the fore, and also. Um, I believe the actual movement itself, and maybe this is old-fashioned, I think movements need leaders and slogans and something people can hang on to. And, and what Occupy Wall Street had was a place to go to join, which is no small thing. But you need to, you need to continue, you need to give people food, and that food are the slogans, social justice uh -huh. slogans. But, yeah. Yeah, interesting. And especially, I think, uh, you know, as we move further and further into this 21st century, people, you know, short attention spans. I think that's one thing that uh, it's gotten exacerbated by the, by the uh, pervasiveness of the Internet. That Absolutely. If you don't have, like, you know, a short, pithy statement, something that people can catch on to. Yes, 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 yes. They don't so much pay attention. It was easy when there was a war and the war bring the troops home. Uh, it wasn't yeah. easy to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's for darn sure. No, it wasn't. And the Vietnamese won the war. They did. But we did bring it to consciousness here. Yes. You know, we made it difficult for the government to pursue it in our names. Yes. And, and that's no small thing. No, quite frankly, I mean, I'm uh, of that age. I was well born in 1950. So, you know, quite frankly, I feel very good about my participation, tear gas, jailing a little bit. Uh, it helped. It did help. These big crowds. And yes, yes, it, it, it absolutely mattered. Crowds do matter. Politicians yes, yes. look to see. And there's that famous old story of A. Philip Randolph. He was back in the 30s. He was head of the all black Pullman Porters Union on, on railroad cars. He had a meeting with President Franklin Roosevelt, and the goal of Randolph was to end discrimination and have some wage fairness. The president says to him, as the story goes, I agree. I'm with you. Now go out there and make me do it. Exactly. I think a lot of people don't understand that. But talk, please, about the role of social movements in making 
it happen, making political change happen. Why, why are they so vital to actually achieving the goals, these social movements? Well, first of all, you know, um, there have been some great statesmen and stateswomen, but for the most part, politicians are interested in running again. Yes. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're interested. It's their livelihood, yeah. and that's what they do, and yeah. that's how they live, and that's where they want to be. Right. So they go with the zeitgeist, and, you know, the Trumpian one is there now. But at any rate, I think that what we can learn from history, what is proof, is that the passage of all the laws that are progressive, like Social Security, etc., right. we just talked about, they came because there were enough people on the streets, you could not ignore it. Right. If these people wanted to run again, if the government wanted to continue as a government, they, were, they had to do something about it. They were influenced, deeply influenced by the noise yes. and, and hopefully the rightness of what was being asked for. But they could not be quiet. You know, they had to do something if they want, just simply wanted to stay in office. And, um, I mean, that's why you had McCarthy and McGovern running around the war thing, because it, that's what scared uh, Johnson, you know? True. That's why he wouldn't run again. I mean, he knew that if he didn't stop the war, he wouldn't win. Right. That's incredible, if you think about it. That is true. That's a, a good you know? point. The noise does matter. And, you know, I, I have found even among the left, uh, there's, you know, this huge variation. Uh, as uh, somebody said, the, the relationship between the right and left is perfect. The right is sadistic. The left is masochistic. It's perfect. <laughs> so we, we have different opinions. And the idea of noise, making noise on the street... Some people, the moderate left is like, oh, no, that's that's impolite. You know, you can't do that. It's it's not, uh, you know, you're not dressed up nicely. People might need a shave, for that matter. Horrors. Yeah. Uh, but, but the noise. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I never think about um, decisions being made about noise. What I think about is anger. Mm. What I think about is what is it? that makes us do what we do, and why do we do it? Because we care, not in some abstract matter, but so much so. I mean, why did the people march in the heat of the summer two years ago in the middle of a pandemic around George Floyd? Yes. I mean, what we saw was so inhuman, so impossible mm -hmm. to swallow, so no, we can't sit with that. So what do we do? We join each other mm -hmm. and we go out and we yell, not in our name, stop, stop, stop. You know, and that's also what the war did in Vietnam. Yes. It was so wrong and people began to feel that way. And I think that one of the problems, at least immediately of the last few years, certainly the pandemic and, and briefly before it, is a sense of alienation back in this country, which does not exactly resemble the 50s. But there, I mean, you can look at the drug problem and you can see it there for sure. I mean, it, 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 people feel quite alone. Uh, people feel all the decisions they make are not part of a zeitgeist. They're not part of something bigger than themselves. Everybody is just them and maybe their nuclear family. 
and you need to feel part of something. Ah. I think everyone needs to feel part of something larger than themselves, and that is also motivating. Interesting, as you say, you know, the, the nuclear family, and that's one of the things that that the right does is they kind of deny uh, any kind of outside of the nuclear family connection. Right. That it's all. You know, the old-fashioned, I mean, you talk about the 50s, you know, white men dominate. That's how right. it was, and that's what they want to do. If you just right. tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about keeping democracy alive, how it can be done, what we can learn, and what what can really work. Our guest today is author Beverly Goligorsky. Her new book is Can You See the Wind? Give give us a little hint about that, the the title of the book. Something to do with the anti-war stuff, right? Well, uh, one of my characters is is in in Attica, and his mother is visiting him. And and during the visit, he says to her, Mom, change is like the wind. Can you see the wind? And that's when I knew I had my title. Uh Because change is invisible until it succeeds. Mm. And 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 people have to believe in what they're doing. Listen, did we think we would end the war in terms of not being the Vietnamese, but in terms of our part? Not necessarily. But did we want to? Yes. 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 And little by little, as more people joined, it became what everybody... I mean, today, people actually lie and say they were part of that movement. <laughs> Because it's wrong to say you weren't. It's like saying you're a fascist, you know? And so it's interesting to me, you know, so many people I know probably never walked the streets will say, oh, yeah, I remember marching in Washington. I think, really? You know, well, that's good. I don't don't challenge that. I'm glad. But um, I I think that happens because people want to be part of something Uh good. Uh Uh-huh. So it's not visible at the time. That is for sure, for sure. But but, but later yeah, on, yeah. and and it, yeah. it it can happen, and we have made it happen. And we you talk about passion, anger. You know, when I think about back during the, the war, America's war in Vietnam, yeah, I felt passion. I saw it. You know, this was completely against everything I was taught in elementary school about what America is all about. We're supposed to help. Right. People get free from colonialism, not be the colonialists ourselves. And and now uh, there's some possibility with regard to uh, reproductive rights, I think, people oh, absolutely. are starting absolutely. to get uh, worked out about that. But you have to, there needs to be that passion there somewhere. And, you know, I yeah. wonder about when it comes to taxation, uh, you know, the fact that, <laughs> that, that the plutocrats, the super rich, uh, they... They value individualism. They praise individualism, uh, and and I wonder about how, uh, you know, how individualism in our twenty two hundred year old American culture has been, and what it individualism serves to divide us. I think. I mean, it's we all love yeah. to be individuals, but talk yeah, about that yeah, a little bit, yeah. please. It is a myth on some level. I mean, I think that. Um, as I say in my essay, you know, um, those who talk about individualism talk about it as freedom, and yes. that's the part that's not really true. Yes. Um, I think that, um, you know, individualism is also close to patrimony. And um, for 
you know, eons, men have ruled. White men have ruled yes. this country. Yes. And um, it's hard to give up your power. And I feel like that's kind of a reclaiming now that the right is doing. And they're not only, um, uh-huh. they can't hold on to what they didn't, what they lost. But it's kind of reclaiming what they think they should have. I, I mean, I think there are many reasons for anti-vaxxers. I don't want to put them all in one boat mm-hmm. because there are actually people frightened because health care has never been good to them. So they're frightened of taking vaccinations that actually were researched much longer than we thought because the um, RNA has been researched for years and years and years and only recently put into a vaccine for COVID. Mm-hmm. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, individualism is, is, a, is a kind of sickness in a way because what makes people happier, what makes people feel important is community. Yes. It always has, you know, and even if your community is your hallway or your community is the 10 friends mm. you see, it is community that keeps you going. And um, it is that lack of community that the left found themselves in for yes. a very, very long time. I don't think it's there now. I think people are wanting it again. You cannot work only by yourself on a computer. You've got to feel that what you're doing counts in the eyes of others in order for you to know that it's working, whatever it may be. And I think that in that sense, the Black Lives Matter movement was also very, very important to a sense of perhaps optimism. And on the other hand, I think the pandemic was very was very bad for um, this, people felt alone in making all these decisions. You know, there was no real public health system that we could trust when Trump came in. You know, he completely downloaded all these other good doctors and CDC and put in his own people, yeah. and we couldn't trust it, you know? And, I mean, you know, he's saying take Clorox, and so people know better than that. But, you know, it's it's as if he... Trump, of course, is not was not the first person like him in this country. I mean, we've gone through that many, many times. But in our recent past, the idea that Trump's put forward um, did actually bring about a movement in a way because there was an immediate negative response to his racism, to his um, nativism, to his xenophobia, etc., and to, of course, his, his chauvinism. But that response was then obscured by the pandemic oh, yes. because we were then all separated and isolated. And, mm. you know, it became a miasma feeling rather than an actual feeling on the streets. However, I do think it's there. And I do think that the generations behind me are taking up the cudgels right now. Yes. I do. And certainly, in reproductive rights, we know, and I say this in my essay, that you can you can rescind a law, but you can't take away from consciousness what has already benefited you. It's why that every time they try and change Social Security, it dies mm-hmm. because they know there'll be an uproar. Old people are not. Yep. 
everybody would be in the streets. Everybody would be chaining themselves the way the women's suffrage did to the doors Indeed. of the Capitol. So they know they, whoever they are during that period, mm-hmm. of, during that period of time. I mean, we, we're not an anachronistic government. We need government. I mean, when yes. a, a society, we need government, yes. but we need a government that enhances community. Of course, in the last couple of years, you know, even the Democrats, they go where the votes are, and that's the two coasts. They're not really organizing in Kentucky. They're not really organizing in um, Tennessee or in, in Mississippi. They're not really going down there. And that's what's needed. How do you, how, how do you uh, uh, change misinformation if you don't tell people another story? How do you do that? You have to do it. Explain face-to-face. You know, I think of the Norma Ray movie. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect example of what has to happen. And it's slow, but it, it has slow. to happen. It is slow, and Americans don't like slow things. But but it, I know it, it, it is slow, and <clears throat> and it, it certainly uh, uh, does work. And I think it's probably a good thing to do at this time. And for, again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Bev Goligorsky, who's got a new book. Can you see the wind about political change? And I can't tell you how often I've been uh, to. It's sort of a what happened meetings af- immediately after an election, and I'm in the Democratic Party. At, at meetings, people say we need to go out and educate, and I, I, that's to me that's a problem. What, what, and I think what contributed, what I think really made Trump win more than anything else, is because no, we don't tell them what to do. We need to listen. We need to respect them. Voters right. in rural areas voted for Trump be- in part because they felt we condescended to him. I mean, look, right. our, our last nominee in 2016 was like so obviously elitist yeah. and better than everybody else. That's not a good uh, way no. to do it. No. Um, so you you learned some unique lessons from your experience with the cafes near army bases during the war in Vietnam in terms of listening and respecting. And I was trying to remember, I know that Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland did something, FTA, which we can't say on the radio. Uh, Which is really the same thing, (laughs) except that we didn't have entertainment like they did. (laughs) (laughs) True. How how did, as you write, that coffee shop collective offer soldiers knowledge is power, Knowledge to change consciousness, and and how, how tell us about what that was about. That cafes listening to to, to army people, respecting them, quite a bit different from how the mainstream media was was portraying us anti-war people at the time, portraying us incorrectly. I must say, how, how does that yeah. tell us what that about what that is, and how that might have promise for today? We engaged. We absolutely engaged. Um, we sat down, we chatted, we did follow up and, you know, we helped people too, you know, if they, if they needed, if they were worried about a mother back in Kentucky, you know, we tried to find a social worker. We did things. We tried to show that we were not only compassionate, but that what we thought and our explanation might be better than 
and the disinformation that they were fed. Uh-huh. I mean, so many of these young guys, as I say in my essay, they were all colors and creeds, and they were all working class. Yes. Um, they, you know, they told us about the radio stations they listened to. They told us they never knew there had been French in Vietnam. Mm. They never knew that we had made, who was Ho Chi Minh, you know? Mm. They didn't know anything. They didn't know. And that was, I wouldn't say it's like deliberate. They decided, you know, it's, it was what was happening that needed to be undone, you know, and in a way that you did it because you cared about their lives. You know, I, I mean, I would say to a, a, a cohort who was there, you know, well, they're going to go anyway, you know, and I was so upset, you know, this one person that I really felt I didn't want him to go, and I knew he was going, you know, and, and that's when, when this friend said to me, knowledge is power, you know, we're being a trench and not even know what's happening, mm. and, and that's when the concept of knowledge is power took hold. Because, you know, the opposite right now is what's happening. It's the right-wing knowledge that's giving them power. I mean, it's, and it's the right-wing spreading the power, spreading the knowledge. Yeah, and, and oftentimes it's not even accurate yeah. knowledge, misinformation, disinformation, exactly. for sure. And, and so these cafes, they were at army ba- near army bases? Quite. And, you know, a lot of us got shut down in due time. But... um. But yes, and so, you know, we went on to do something else, you know? I mean, the whole point, the whole point was we weren't going to stop until we made the government stop. Yes. And um, now it's harder with racism because it's not just the government. That's where Mm. disinformation, misinformation, and too many hundreds of years of that accumulated. Um, So that, too, I mean, the one thing in the movement that I was a part of during the 60s and 70s and even in the early 80s was um, the importance of talking, of going out and meeting people and explaining, explaining the situation, but talking white people to white people about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it was not incumbent upon black people to tell white people how white people should feel because they they weren't causing the problem. We were. And so we had to do something about the disinformation, the misinformation and the racism among white people. So we'd go into neighborhoods. Some some groups set up communes in neighborhoods and lived there. Mm-hmm. And by living there, they showed they were very nice people and there was nothing to be afraid of. And they opened childcare centers and stuff like that. And that helped to deal with the wrong thinking, you know. With, you know, the Vietnamese had a saying that is, it's very hard to change the thinking of small minds. And that is very, very true. It is something that you will not be able to do with the Ku Klux Klan yeah. or the Birch Society. You won't. You know, but around them, uh-huh. there are people you can, you can, you can reach those people. Yes, and people, people don't know. Let's let's face it; they don't know. And and the uh, simplistic uh, definition of things, 
works for a while if people don't get any other information. And they're not going to get, they're not going to take in the information if they're talked down to. And I, it just amazes me how, how not enough Democrats get that. Sounds like you were about to say something. Uh, No, I was just, you know, thinking as you were talking that, um, that the the split in the country, as we know, is is right in the the left. Um, I think that there is a way in which right now, when when an election is going to come up, the mass media deals with that election for a good two years before the election. Right. And and in doing so, it isn't helping because it's just focusing. I mean, Fox News focuses on the right. MSNBC focuses on the left. And it's a relief to go to MSNBC. And I can't stand Fox when I go there. Nevertheless, there has to be a way that the people you want to reach are reached. And it's just not happening through the mass media. We, on the other hand, in the 60s and 70s and some part of the 80s, we did have alternative media. We did. I mean, that was a big deal because we could reach people who the mass media wasn't reaching. We influenced the mass media of the times to take pay attention to us, which was important. And we had uh, our, our own media as well. There were all these so-called... <laughs> Yeah, you had what I- the the uh, our own media as well, the so-called underground newspapers. They were real popular because yes. they were different. <laughs> and there's a little bit of drama in there, and Americans like drama. You know, it, it, yeah. it, what we see on TV is, uh, you know, as they say, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, it has to be it has to be drama, but c- connecting yeah. with people again. And I think, uh, you know, th- th- what people think about freedom. It, it varies so much. The definition of freedom itself, I think, is a, is a challenge that, that we on the left, which frankly used to be kind of the middle, uh, the other side sees freedom as the ability of large corporations to do whatever they want, wherever they want to do it with no regulations. That's at the top of their food chain. That's not the, the, the uh, you know crowds of people in the right and the, the Trumpers. Adherence to Trumpism define freedom as anti-vax, anti-mask, and people are afraid of the the vaccine. I can understand that. I mean, especially, you know, people have been abused by that stuff from the government. But as you write, they equate their choices with the personification of freedom, which is really fear of loss of control. Right. This is key, I think, as to what's behind so much of the far-right movement. Who's control? And how does that affect... Uh, school reading options, for example, what the kids can read in school, reproductive rights, gay and trans rights. What's the fear behind these widespread attacks from from school boards to, you know, any kind of uh, anti-war well, movement, whatever? Go ahead. Yeah, I think the fear, I mean, I'm sure there are thousands of different psychological reasons for it. But I think the fear is, you know, in terms of losing control has to do with an almost anti-modernity feeling, um, equating progressive ideas with wanting to demolish old-fashioned mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that's not true. No. That's not true at all, because the very word progression means that, progression. However, that equation is what frightens people 
uh, who are not in charge of corporations, who are not making a great living, who are worrying about their sons and daughters on opiates. Yeah. You know, I think it frightens people um, that what little they have might, you know, be taken yes. away in some way, and um, and and they hold on tight to what they have, and and the left has to understand that, yes. and it has to, you know, pay homage to that in some sense, because unless you are poor, and you have had to worry about so many things. You might not understand what that feels like. My mother used to have a saying. I grew up in the South Bronx, which was a very poor neighborhood, and we lived in the basement of a building. And my mother used to say, I want only one thing. I want the landlord to live here for a week. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> that was how she expressed misery, you know, about those who had, and, uh, as opposed to she who had not. So. Interesting, and and I, I've been trying to figure out. I was in uh, South Central Pennsylvania a while ago, r realizing that wow, is this ever Trump country? And and yeah. I learned a lot from being there. That these are people who feel like, damn it, I've worked hard all my life, I've played by the rules, and I'm not getting ahead. It's yeah. And, and I'm afraid, afraid, these other people, the others, the people from across the border or whatever, people of a different color, uh, are are getting what I'm not getting. So, of course, they went to Trump. And uh, it, if we don't address that, if it, it amazes me how the Democratic Party has, as, as you pointed out earlier, you know, there's the whole flyover areas, the, the less densely populated areas. We don't pay attention to them, and they have a lot of electoral votes. And it's not yeah, just about yeah. elections. It's about yeah. real change. And we, we have to listen to them. And I, as you're saying, interacting, personal interacting, you know, the COVID stuff, that was like, it was impossible, and it made it far, far worse. We felt so isolated. I read a book recently and I had Michael Kazin on the show uh, recently. He's got a, a, a new book out called What It Took to Win. And he traces the last 150 so years of the Democratic Party. And basically what it takes to win is underneath the politics. It's the movements. It's the unions. It's the movements. That is, you can't win without that. And the, the Democratic Party, I don't know, they just... Maybe it's because they're, you know, beholden to the same sources of money as so many of the Republicans are. But we, yeah. without a movement on the ground, the party itself focusing exclusively on electoral change is not going to achieve our goals. What, what, right. what should, what role should we expect of the party? What should we demand of the party? No, I mean, I don't think we can demand anything yeah. by ourselves. That's true. We can only demand in a solidarity with many. In New York City, this incredible guy at Amazon in Staten Island. Oh, yeah, right. At a very conservative area. And it's the, the most conservative area in a liberal state. Yes. And in a liberal city. Yeah. Christopher Small, I don't want to miss, miss oh, his name. Good. Um, what he did was for two years, he never let anybody pass by without talking. He had bonfires. He stood at bus stops, and little by little, it wasn't him alone, 
more and more people joined him until finally they had enough people to do to try to get a union, and they won. Yes. And uh, but it was two years, two years of daily work. I mean, it is not a quick thing. We cannot. Yeah. This the other thing about the internet. It makes you think everything has to happen tomorrow. Right. It can't. I know. It can't. It never has. You know, and I I think that um, also the Democratic Party, for example, is um, it loses its 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 bravery, uh-huh. you know, yeah. <laughs> very quickly um, in the face of wanting to be reelected also. Yeah. And um, I mean, that build better thing. I can't remember the exact build name back better. Build, build back better. Build back better was great. Yeah. Great. Great. And of course, you know, where is it? And right. And and where is the movement demanding it? Right. Where are we at the gates? We demand various I mean I think it's I think it's in it's in it's in the feelings of people right now. We all want it. But but we cannot expect that buses of people from Kentucky are going to go to Washington to demand build back better unless we can reach the people in Kentucky to make them feel they can get it. Uh Unless they have empowerment, unless they understand that they are as capable of change as anyone else. I mean, the government serves the people, allegedly. Yes. (laughs) But that is what the government is supposed to do. And that's what has to come back to people's minds. We can make them do it. We have we have and we must, but people are feeling too depressed to believe that. Hmm. And I use Kentucky because of Mitch McConnell and the rabid politics of of, of Mitch McConnell. Yeah. But he doesn't speak for all the people in Kentucky. You know, he speaks for a Republican uh, group of people. You know, yeah. and I mean, I mean, and and Manchin doesn't speak for all no. of West Virginia. No, for he sure. speaks for the powerful groups of coal of coal owners, you know? And and so nobody is challenged, not nobody, right, but not that's enough. what needs to be challenged. You know, people have to go there and tell people another story. And one of the things, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I, I've yeah. long been a, a fan of uh, Franklin Roosevelt and, and the New Deal and, uh, you know, job creation. I think it's a tremendous tool. And Build Back Better... It has a little bit of that, and most of yeah, the yeah. real successful Democrats, Lyndon Johnson wanted it. Um, but where, how you, I don't, you know, as you're saying, you know, it's not something you can see. It's not something you can see right now. I mean, later on, when the jobs are there building, you know, solar-powered trains that go high speed and things like that and have a lot of really good jobs, people see that. I, I don't know, maybe... The demand was there for Franklin Roosevelt because the economic conditions were so bad, and he felt like he had to do something. But I, I don't, I don't see the the passion there for uh, even though it could be really good, especially for the people in the uh, rural areas, the, uh, the the low lower density areas. Uh, it could be terrific for them, and they, you know, they lack doctors. But you build a hospital, you get doctors, you know. And but uh, it, that's it's hard to organize that, and and certainly the Democratic Party is. Uh, sometimes I feel like they have all the uh, the backbone of grilled cheese, you know. It just they're yeah. Skin- no, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, I you're you're absolutely right. 
um, movements grow out of a passion. Yes. Uh, movements continue because of a passion, because it's not comfortable. You need the passion, uh-huh. because it's not always comfortable. And again, um, that is the only way to make the people who can enact laws do that. Um, but I don't, as I said before, it's not a quick thing. Yeah. I feel, though, that something happened in the last few years was a taste of fear, alienation, and the height of individuality. And I think that those mm. feelings have coalesced and frightened a new generation to some extent so that they are less sexist, yes. they are hopefully less racist, yes. and hopefully you know, more committed to change. And it is to that generation and to others that um, I urge the belief that in solidarity you can make change. You can. It doesn't have to be violent. It can be if it is, you know, but it, it's not. A, you don't make that choice. You move off of a need to meet people where they are, explain yes. what needs to be done. I mean, when you think about a poor community in Mississippi and you go down and you talk about the need for good medicine, good medicine that they won't have to pay for, you know, and that that's what single payer is about, Mm -hmm. then maybe they will fight for it. But you have, you know, it has, that's where, I mean, it's not just education. No. Something about that word (laughs) that is from top down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, I know and I have to teach you. Well, not quite like that. (laughs) And, you know, I wonder about, I mean, for example, young people get climate change. It's their world. It's oh, yeah. like serious oh, yeah. stuff. But older people, uh, you know, I don't feel it. I don't see it. You know, it's it's sort of peripheral to my life. But I, I'm thinking that younger people are getting that, that, hey, this stuff is real. Oh, of course. And, and young women, for example, haven't been too worried about uh, reproductive rights because it's always been that way. But now right. and there, there's, there's nothing like adversity to organize you. Right. I mean, for right, sure. right, right. You can't take away what people need right. once they know what they need. Right. Oh, my goodness. I mean, and you can't take yeah. away people's rights. I remember courts used to always be, the Supreme Court used to always be expanding rights. Ha! Boy, yeah. those were different yeah. days. Um, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. Ronald Reagan is a big factor in the 20th century and, and where we are now in politics. He went on the warpath against unions and facilitated sending plants and factories overseas, shipping jobs overseas. The Midwest got hurt very badly yeah. by that. But you ever see Michael Moore's film on Flint? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, and it's true. Terrible. So how is it that that, that policy of, t- of, of, of taking jobs away from the Midwest that we're talking about, uh, how did that push them to the right? And I would think there must be opportunities in that region that, that we have missed and, and we haven't been able to connect with people there. I think you're right. I don't exactly know what they are, except <laughs> that there's a lot of working people that live there who yes. are not working right. to their um, level. Right. And um, I think that opening jobs in that area, that should be unionized so they can pay well. You know, I mean, if Amazon goes into uh, Michigan 
Um, they may give you $20 an hour, but there's no guarantee of anything. You know, yeah. a, a union guarantees your future. And that's why so many of the blue-collar workers in the Midwest felt relaxed because mm. they felt me and my son and my daughter, you know, we don't have to worry right. about the mortgage, you know. And um, that's not true anymore, you know. Everything feels moving very quickly, you know. Can you hold on to your house? Can yes. you this? Can that? Um, and, of course, in that sense, the government doesn't talk to that at all. No. It and, doesn't, you know. And I, I wonder sometimes... I think a lot of the people in this uh, Midwest area see Democrats as talking about things that don't really matter to them. You know, like uh, they, they don't know that, for example, trans and, and stuff like that. They don't know people. They don't know that they know people like that. But I, I don't I don't see if they don't see Democrats talking with them, listening to them, it ain't going to happen. And, and as you well, know, go ahead. Okay, well, also, I mean, as old as, this xenophobia is as old as this country. Um, and, and what Trump did is he picked up all the germs and he sowed them into what he sowed them into. And um, xenophobia has always been people afraid of other people taking yes. what they have when yes. they have little. yes. And and therefore, those who have the least became frightened more than those who had more, because when you have more, you have a buffer. Right. And, um, and you know, even throughout history, in the Russian Revolution, it was the peasants that could, you couldn't organize. Right. Because they had less than other people, and they were afraid of losing their land. Yes. And, of course, only... Um, I mean, I, there's no real, you know, there, there are hardly any farmers left anyway in this country. Yeah. But the farmers that exist, they're part of big conglomerates. You know, they're yeah. not all farmers are in trouble. Um, so um, actually, I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, people are <laughs> afraid of <laughs> people are afraid of losing what they have. I read a book just called right. 1848, and it amazed me that the that the aristocracy's most solid defenders were peasants and poor people because they were afraid of losing yeah. what little they had. And fear yeah. is always at the root of hate, always. Yeah. Manipulation yeah. of fear is a yeah. time-tested tool. It's a time-tested tool of right-wing politics. It worked really well. Yeah. The role of fear and straight, white, working-class men seems to be uh, uh, driving it. And I wonder, it, it seems to me that movements for economic justice can if you know we we reach out to people listen to them respect them there's some real possibility there but if we don't it ain't going to happen because as you say f flare ups single days of protest they don't engender real change no they they, they they're nice they're good <laughs> but they're not bad no but um but but yeah i mean um the thing is Social justice has to have a wide berth. It has to include um, anti-racism and yes. anti-sexism. Because yes. that is what this country has finally evolved toward. It hasn't succeeded mm -hmm. as much as it needs to succeed. So it's not just economic justice. Um, because I actually feel that 
that's the thing about the Vietnamese saying that's hard to change small minds. They have to be changed. And the, 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 even people who, I remember reading a breakdown in the New York Times when Trump was elected of who voted for him economically. He right. not only had people who made less than 50, he had people that were making 300,000. Yeah. So it was in the interests of both the poor and the rich. Yes. Uh, and I think they had different interests, right? So I think the poor voted for him because he made noise, he shouted, and he made himself present, and they felt voiceless. Uh, and so when people feel voiceless, unfortunately, it's what happened in Germany, right? Yeah. I mean, in you know, so it's it's all of those kinds of things that have happened that kind of grew together during the four years of Trump that were there, right? that were happening, but that weren't quite as apparent as Trump made them be because he gave them permission to come out. He said, it's okay to be yep. racist. Oh, yeah. It's okay. You know, what are these women who are... Who are um, suing me there, not women I would go out with. I mean, nonsense, horrible nonsense. Yeah, right. Yeah, but he, yeah, made, it, he made it okay for that. And, and there was a certain mm -hmm. segment that just loves that kind of stuff, a lot more of them than yeah. I thought, frankly. Well, just yeah. you say, think of this essay as my way of reassuring you that a sense of helplessness has been overcome before and can be again. Uh, as we try to learn about organizing for change, do I hear some degree of optimism from you, Bev? Uh, you do. Oh, you good. Do. Definitely you do. We can do it. Well, the book yeah. is called Can You See the Wind? I just wanted to say something about the book also. It's a novel. I mean, it's true. Right. Everything in the book is true, but it is a novel. You know, the characters uh, are made up. Absolutely. So many of the best books I've read, fictional characters, but very, very real. Absolutely. That's what tells the story. Bev Kolagoski, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. Bye-bye. Disappear, but the world may not have many years. I, I...